When the going gets tough, the tough get baking. That seems to be the philosophy of my guest on Things Unseen today. I've come to the Baked Street Cafe in Stoke Newington, North East London, which is for a few weeks only, just before the beginning of the holy season of Ramadan, playing host to an evening dessert parlour run by the great British Bake Off contestant, Ali Imdad. It's all part of his plan to bring people of all faiths and none together over food. And here's the man himself. Ali, welcome to Things Unseen. Thank you. Thanks for talking to us. You're opening in just under an hour's time. We are, yeah. So um, just doing the prep as we speak. I've got some prep to do downstairs in the prep kitchen if you want to chat downstairs. Okay, take us downstairs. Let's have a look. We just headed down a couple of flights of stairs and we seem to be going into a preparation area. Yeah. Love lots of supplies. It's a sort of subterranean kitchen with a fridge and lots of baking trays, a big table here. And I can see over the next 50 minutes or so, Ali's going to be uh, using his magical skills to put all this together. It's quite uh, low roofed, so anyone who's tall can't really work here. I'd say anyone five, six or lower. <laughs> but there's an overriding smell, is that? Um... Sugar. Sugar. Yeah, it's very I mean, sweet, isn't it? Yeah, because a lot of cakes are baked here during the day as well. So there's always sort of an overriding smell of sugar or cakes or cookies. What's the big overarching idea behind your dessert pop-up parlour? Firstly, it's a very sort of simple, basic, I have desserts, please come and try them. Baking is what I do, sweets is what I'm known for. But there is a twofold element to this. I'm theming my desserts and my theme is the Muslim world. So you get spices from Pakistan, you get aromas and floral sort of notes from Iran. It's showing the variety of cultures of the Muslim world. Now, what's this that you're lifting out of this tray then? So this is something that's new to the menu. I haven't tried it out yet, so I'm hoping it turns out well. Okay. It's a mango cake with a mango mousse topping. It's inspired by Pakistan. Pakistan is known for its mangoes. And in the summer season, Pakistan is absolutely love going out and having some mango. So this is a twist on that. There's some cardamom in there, which is, again, a very popular spice in Pakistan. It's a Western dessert, but with Eastern flavours. And it's kind of about bringing the two sides together, the East and the West, through the medium of dessert. Looks a bit like a very light marzipan, I would say. Um, <laughs> it looks like a marzipan. It's very brave of you, knowing that we were coming to do this as an experiment for the first time. Ah, oh, well, I've been on Bake Off, so I'm used to disasters and successes, so it's, it's fine. So did you prepare this and bring it down then? I baked it last night. Okay. And I put it into the fridge to um, set, because it's mousse and there's gelatine in there, you've got to leave it overnight to set properly. Before you went into Bake Off, where did this whole alley and baking narrative come from? I mean, is this a family thing or did you just like pluck it out of the air and think, no, I'm going to go for this? My mum doesn't do desserts at all. My mum didn't even use the oven before I did. It's when I moved away to uni. I um, just started baking with my housemates. We started doing cupcakes, macarons and chicken pie and fish pie. And then from there, just step by step, I kind of started trialling out new things. And then uh, I decided I was pretty good at it. <laughs> and then did you see Bake Off on telly and think, you know, yeah, I could do that? I didn't necessarily apply thinking, yeah, I'm going to get on. I applied because I thought, why not? What's the harm? But I ended up getting on. So it was as much a surprise to me as to anyone else. And it's the whole thing, isn't it, when you're um, in any kind of minority or perceived minority, as soon as you get prominence like that, mm -hmm. there's this pressure, whether it's either conscious or unconscious, to think, ooh, I'm carrying the whole weight of yeah. the Muslim world on yeah. my shoulders, because everyone's going to start making yeah. assessments yeah. about 
men who are Muslims who are bakers, you know? Obviously nobody goes on there trying to represent anyone but themselves, but the nature of it is, is that if you are a minority, you are going to represent your minority group. How do you get chosen? Do you have to produce loads of samples or give them like a portfolio of things that you've baked already? It's quite a few challenges you kind of have to go through. So from 15,000, you're, you know, dwindle down to 200, then to 50, then to 30, and then to the final 12. 2013, wasn't it? It's like five years ago now, but it probably I, seems like yesterday. Yes, yes. It still feels like I was just on it. But yes, five years ago. <laughs> wow. Do people stop you in the street all the time? I wouldn't say all the time, but I still do get recognised, especially within the Asian community, because I, you know, I am still the only Asian Muslim guy who was on there. Obviously, our community is very protective of each other and we kind of support each other. The whole reason I'm doing this pop-up is because a lot of people still follow me on social media. So, yeah, I still get recognised every now and then. How many of these different pop-up facilities are you operating at at the moment? I have a shop already in Birmingham, but I have done pop-ups before. This is my fourth or maybe fifth pop-up that I've done. Mm. And it's just, it's just good fun. I had uh, to ask our programme team what a pop-up was. <laughs> and I said, I'm a bit of a granddad, and maybe this is a term used by younger people. So, for the purposes of other people on the programme, what exactly is a pop-up? So, a pop-up is where other businesses will allow you to use their premises for a short period of time for a small cost. So that allows you to test the market and of course whether you can run a business. Mm. But also it's an opportunity to kind of trial something out just for fun for a few weeks and that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm interested in food and Islam. As a Christian myself, we yeah. have all these stories in our Bible. Yeah. We have manna from heaven in the Old Testament coming yeah. down as loaves of bread. We have the feeding of the 5,000. We have the Last Supper with uh -huh. Jesus. Yeah. We have the wedding feast at Cana where Jesus turns the, the water into wine. Yeah. Is the Quran also full of tales and stories about food? I think all faiths are, to be honest. I think all faiths show that food isn't just sustenance. It's not just about eating to survive. There are stories behind the food, there is meaning behind food and I think Islam is very much the same. I mean, there are plenty of stories of the Prophet eating, his favourite food was honey, where he'd kind of dip his finger in honey because he just absolutely loved it. The Quran is uh, full of stories of figs and olives, so food is kind of integral to our faith. Even when we eat stuff like dates or figs or honey, if we do it with the intention of mimicking the Prophet or the prophets, there's reward in it. So, as I said, it's not just about sustenance. There's a theological aspect to food, which I find fascinating. I, I absolutely love the link between faith and food. Obviously, we eat to survive, but that's a very materialistic understanding of food. Food in its wider sense is if all that's created comes from God, the enjoyment of God's creation is in a sense, uh, it brings home to you how blessed we are as creatures that mm -hmm. the earth has provided for us and therefore mm -hmm. God has provided for us. Especially in, in this modern climate where there's a lot of food shaming going on or shaming of people who eat too much. And I think that's ridiculous. God put flavors and these spices and these herbs and these fruits and vegetables and meats on the planet for us, not just to survive, but to enjoy. And I'm trying to encourage people to eat and to enjoy your food. Of course, you have to eat in moderation. I mean, we are human and there is an issue of overindulgence, but at the same time, we can't flip it and attach shame to what we eat, as though sugar is the enemy, or as though fat is the enemy. There's blessing in what we eat, and there's blessing in enjoying what we eat. It strikes me in Islam, compared with Christianity, you don't have as much this guilt over pleasure. 
there is a tendency yeah. in some Christian circles, I yes. mustn't generalise here, but there are some that say, if you're having a good time, there must be something wrong. Again, what people tend to do is they take one principle and run away with it. So obviously with that, they take gluttony and think, oh, if you're enjoying yourself or you're eating a little bit too much, you're now uh, akin with the devil. Islam doesn't really have that link between feeling guilty about your pleasures, as long as you do it with the right intention. I think people still are happy to enjoy their food, especially in Ramadan. Whilst we do fast partly to remember the poor, when we break our fast, there's no shame in having a variety of food and enjoying it in order to thank God for the blessings He's given us. So again, for me, Islam is about moderation. So uh, as Ali is uh, getting all of his cakes into position here, ready to open up, of course, it's worthwhile reminding everybody that we're only a few days away from the beginning of Ramadan here. And, you know, I'm really keen to talk to him about how uh, this is going to set up a challenge to him because uh, during Ramadan, Muslims are only allowed to eat and drink for a very, very small period of time, perhaps five to six hours. But I get the feeling that if you're fairly typical of the Muslims I've met, you're actually rather looking forward to it. When you live in a very materialistic or very capitalistic world, it's very easy to sort of step away from the spirituality aspect of your faith because you're so busy in trying to make money or just trying to survive. And Ramadan allows you to reconnect. You tend to pray more, firstly, but it also gives you a chance to sort of appreciate the things that you have. After you open your fast, most people go to evening prayers. And again, what that does is just, if you've lost your way a little bit, it can kind of bring you back into the fold. And it's something that I think, especially for second, third generation Muslims who are so busy, it can bring you back as a reminder that um, at the end of the day, we're here to serve God. It's a bit like in the Christian tradition, we have this notion of going into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights based yeah. on the life of Jesus. But yeah. at the heart of all that is the retreat idea, which is you're there to charge up your batteries and yeah. to reorient yourself to God. Ramadan just allows you to kind of stop, stop for a minute or rather a month and reevaluate who you are, where you're going, what life means to you, but also what your faith means to you what you want from your faith and what you're going to give to your faith. And what about your Ramadan routine in those minutes before the fast starts? How do you prepare for that? Because there's a tendency amongst some Muslims I know to be really pack it all in and eat as much and drink as much as they can. And other people go about it in a much more delicate, light-paced sort of way. Overindulging, it's not forbidden, but it lacks decorum. So a lot of spiritual people won't overindulge when they're beginning to fast because it's not the prophetic way. Whilst other people realizing that they're going to be starving for the next 16, 17 hours will just pack it all in. I'm kind of in the middle. I realize that especially in the summer months, you need to make sure you're energized. And obviously since I bake a lot, I need to make sure I have the energy to do that. So I'll make sure I eat the right foods. I don't want to feel bloated when I'm going to sleep. And again, I do think it kind of defeats the purpose of fasting if you're just, uh, you know, shoving your gob full of food at the beginning and then shoving your face full of food when it opens. It kind of loses the value, I think. I did a program following the routine of Ramadan just for a day and even that almost proved beyond me. But I can remember when the alarm clock went off, yeah. I only had 20 minutes to eat before 2.37 a.m., that's when the fast started. Yeah. And there were lots of tips from Muslims about the best things to eat. Yeah, health is very important when it comes to fasting because you need to make sure you're eating the right things to sustain your body and to sustain your energy. Because 
you know, just because you're fasting doesn't mean you have to stop living. You've still got to go out to work. You've still got to, you know, if you're at home, cook and feed your family. So you need to make sure you're eating the right things to sustain yourself and sustain your health over the fasting hours. And have you had, you know, trials and tribulations at all? I mean, have you had, you know, fainting fits or really bad yeah. headaches and things like that? Yeah, I think this was maybe two summers ago and it was scorching. It was a really hot day. And I went out when I shouldn't have. I hadn't had water for a very long time. And I didn't faint, but I felt very, very lightheaded. I knew that if I didn't get some liquid in me, I would faint. So I broke my fast and I had a, a slushy. <laughs> Islam is about leniency and about, for me, logic. If it doesn't make logical sense, you don't do it. And if you're ill and you can't handle the fast, then you're not required to do it. The charity, one of the five pillars of Islam, isn't the money that people save on the food that they give to the poor. Is that how it works? Zakat, isn't it, is the word? Zakat. There's a whole science behind Zakat, and it's based on your income. You have to give a certain amount of your income to charity. But again, that's to aid the poor, not to target the poor. If you can't afford Zakat, you're not entitled to give it. You did all this very specifically because of a desire to present a face of the Islamic faith to the world which is very counter to one that's often presented by the media, which is terrorism and difficulty and violence and troublesome minority. These are the kind of stereotypes that people have had to live with. Yeah. This is almost a choice of baking as a semi-political strategy. Firstly, I think the main issue that Muslims face is being the other, whether it's you know, strong sort of discrimination or stereotypes like Muslims are terrorists or whether it's smaller ones like Muslims don't integrate or they have a different lifestyle. And that's kind of what I'm trying to uh, focus on. Now, not everyone's interested in politics. Not everybody wants to talk about the political aspects of Islam. But that doesn't mean normal people don't hold those prejudices either. This is my way of doing an apolitical conversation about Muslims and Islam. I want to introduce people to aspects of Islam that aren't to do with niqab, that aren't to do with jihad, that aren't to do with men's roles and women's roles. It's about what Muslims have contributed to the world as a whole and how food can kind of help bring people together. I think you said in one interview you did that you were talking to a taxi driver and the taxi driver looked at you and said, uh, you know, you're very welcome here, you know. <laughs> it's like, well, you, know, you, you were born here and you have a British passport. Yeah. Yeah. I actually get that a lot on Twitter. And again, it's by well-intentioned people you know these aren't racist people these aren't people who are going out to edl marches that these aren't people it's who quite hold... patronizing though isn't it it is but you have to take it with a pinch of salt because these people they don't judge you but they still see you as different and that's still a problem because we can never be one community if for whatever reason you see one group of people just based on their race or their faith as being somehow different to you do you hope to engage people in conversations when they come in to buy the cake or is the very fact that the cake is there and you're a Muslim and you've made it, is that enough? Or does it have to go further than that? Does it have to be a dialogue? I like to think the cakes kind of speak for themselves because on the menu it says the country that their spices are influenced by. So the cardamom and the dates and the honey. So on a micro level, that kind of speaks for itself. People ask where these spices are from and that sort of starts up a conversation. So it widens people's horizons, you hope? Absolutely, on aspects that they didn't intend it to be widened on. People... When they talk about religion, they don't intend to talk about saffron, they don't t intend to talk about cake, they intend to talk about niqab or bombing. So it's just taking a more subtle, wide-angled approach. So you're taking a subtle approach to seizing back the initiative through cake? Yeah, absolutely. I like to think that's innovative. <laughs>
Yeah, well, I must say, looking at that mango slice going uh, to the other side of the kitchen, I'm uh, be fairly persuaded of this myself. <laughs> what else are you hoping to serve up? I've got one that's inspired by Egypt. It's a cinnamon and almond sticky toffee pudding. And I'm just making a cinnamon caramel sauce to go with it. Again, it's about fusing the east and the west. Sticky toffee pudding is a very classic British dish, but I'm just giving it an Egyptian twist. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> so here's a question for you. While you put all that uh, sugar into the pan and make this delicious toffee <laughs> sauce, say we were in Ramadan now and you're working in a kitchen, yeah. isn't it possible that you could almost accidentally break your fast by either giving into temptation because you're surrounded by all this food uh-huh. or that you just get food on your lips because you're surrounded by all these ingredients? Yeah. Thankfully, Islam is based very much in the real world, so it has rulings and answers for stuff like that. If you give in to temptation, well, that's your own fault. You've broken the covenant based on your own desires. If you get it on your lips accidentally and you swallow, but you've realized you were fasting, then your fast is broken and you just have to make it up. If you do it by accident, not realizing you're fasting and only realize afterwards, then it's seen as a gift from God and you can carry on fasting for the rest of the day. So let's just say you haven't realized you're fasting or you forgot you're fasting and you eat a whole meal and you realize afterwards that doesn't actually count as your fast breaking you can carry on fasting so there are loads of rules and regulations as I said it's based very much in the real world it gives you answers to every scenario that you're in if you're somebody who's trying to fast for 15, 16 hours a day mm-hmm. it's much harder for you working in the kitchen than it is for all the Muslims who aren't surrounded by food I don't know actually <laughs> if you ask people who cook when they finish cooking they'll always say I don't eat my own food because for some reason, once you've been cooking, you don't feel like eating what you've just made. I don't particularly feel hungry when I'm cooking. It just occupies me. Mmm, that's beginning to really smell like toffee now. Yeah. Who are your customers? Isn't there a danger that you're sort of preaching to the converted? converted. Yeah, that you know, you, yeah. you don't need to persuade Muslims about the virtue of A, Ramadan, <laughs> and B, the fact that Islam is a peaceable, yeah. sophisticated yeah. world religion. Well, I'd say it's about half-half. 50% of the people who come are Muslim and 50% aren't. This isn't just about telling people this is a peaceful religion. It's also reminding Muslims about the diversity of culture and the influences their religion has had on world food because a lot of them don't realize where certain spices have come from or what countries have historically been Muslim so it's this dual purpose it's educating people who aren't Muslims about the peaceable intentions of this world religion uh-huh. but it's also saying to people within your own faith look do you realize how rich and diverse are the sources oh, yeah. of all these Islamic countries and what they provide you know absolutely Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And what about the nightmare of trying to make a living selling cakes in in a time when people can't eat for 15 or 16 hours a day? I mean, that doesn't sound like a very uh, promising business plan. You know what? Business tends to go up during Ramadan because after people have broken their fast, they tend to go out. Once fast is open, they'll eat food at home and then go out for dessert afterwards. But also, Ramadan encourages people to go out to their neighbours, to their friends, to their family. It's a very rich Muslim tradition that when you go to somebody's house, you take a gift with you. And I think everyone can agree the best gift out there is food. People will always take Indian sweets or cakes. So if you're a business owner who deals in food, you're not particularly worried about Ramadan. It sometimes uh, spikes. And social media, you've had some, well, haven't we all, but you've had some particularly unpleasant 
instances, haven't you, of, yeah. of traffic of messages? You know, you have to remember the online world is not necessarily reflective of the real world. But give us a flavour of some of the comments that people have targeted at you. They're quite, you know, offensive. They're always discriminatory and they are always based on either my skin colour or my faith. This sauce has now gone absolutely, well, it's wonderful. It looks like chocolate, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Yeah. It's a dark muscovado sugar. Why are there no lumps in there? Because you weren't stirring all the time. No. Um, I'm talented, what can I say? I mean, gosh. <laughs> what does Ramadan say about modesty? <laughs> oh, it's not Ramadan yet. <laughs> How to get it out of my system now. <laughs> all right, you're allowed. That, that's definitely a score point to you. Yeah, yeah. So if you were doing like a lead table of your most popular sales, which would be number one in the charts? <laughs> well, I guess that's a problem because I change my menu every week. <laughs> which are the ones that run out quickly, you know? Probably the brownie. The one that's Palestine. It's got date and fig in there, so it's really gooey and rich. And it's always served warm with cinnamon ice cream. That I can't take off the menu because there'll be uproar. Your own personal favourite? This mango one, actually. I haven't tasted it yet, but I can tell I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> and what about next plans? Because I think you've got some plans for Birmingham, is uh -huh. that right? Yeah, I'm planning on doing this in Birmingham, potentially in the last week of Ramadan. But nothing's confirmed yet. And then I'm going to do it around the country, so do a little bit of a milk cafe tour. Ali Imdad, thank you so much for sharing your ideas and the beginning promising glimpses of your cakes with us today. I'm Mark Dowd and this edition of Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. The mango cake's actually going to be going upstairs into the cafe, but I've been spotting these trimmings on the side and I've been told I'm allowed to sample them, so here goes. Here's the sponge. And there's this delicious mango and cardamom. Mm. Now I know why those people want to be judges on Bake Off. <laughs> I'm no Mary Berry, but I would give that 10. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.